Confusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition we'll feature craniometry, solar max, and cognitive reserves. But first up, from 2001, here's Deanna Coleman reporting on penguins, planetary engineering, introversion, and ecstasy. <laughs> Environmentalists have been concerned by falling over penguins since the rise of aircraft tra traffic in Antarctica and the Falklands War. British pilots had claimed that as aircraft flew by, they noticed penguins falling over backwards. A recent study on the island of South Georgia by members of the British Antarctic Survey recorded the behaviour of a group of penguins as two helicopters flew overhead at varying speeds at heights. The penguins, it seems, did not fall over at all but stopped calling to each other while the aircraft was overhead and the adolescent birds who were not associated with the nest walked away. Much like the behaviour in our houses under the flight path in Sydney when a Boeing 747 cruises over, making it impossible to hear each other. The research team also concluded that the penguins' reproduction was not affected by the air traffic as originally thought. The increase in the number of incubating birds in the observed colony matched the number in an undisturbed colony nearby. Moving almost six sextillion tonnes is relatively simple, say a team of astronomers who believe we can shift the Earth into a new orbit further away from the Sun's ever-increasing brightness. Over the next three billion years, the Sun's brightness will increase by 40%, making it impossible for humans to survive on our planet. But all we need to do is use the gravitational slingshot technique, where a large asteroid about 100 kilometres in diameter is flung into space transferring some of its orbital energy and repositioning the Earth to maintain a benign global climate. This simple technique, increasing the radius of the Earth's orbit, would need to be repeated every 6,000 years to compensate for the increasing brightness of the Sun. Gradual outward migration of the Earth would in turn affect the orbits of other planets in the solar system and change their stability and perhaps other moons and planets could be moved into more favourable positions in the solar system where their climates would support life. But don't go investing investing in real estate on Mars just yet, this procedure would require some care. If the 100 kilometre diameter big huge asteroid was to accidentally collide with our Earth, when it would wipe, then it would wipe out all life on our planet before trying to save it. An optimistic or pessimistic outlook on life may be determined by the way electrical signals in the brain respond to different stimuli. A study was conducted by Stanford University in the US where 14 women aged between 19 and 42 were shown a range of pictures while their brains were scanned for activity. Each subject was shown both positive images, including happy couples, puppies, ice cream and sunsets, and negative pictures such as crying, angry people, guns and cemeteries. Some women showed strong signs of electrical activity in the regions that deal with emotion when positive images were shown, while others responded much more to negative pictures. When the volunteers were asked to complete a standard personality test, used to class people as extroverts or introverts, the researchers discovered an interesting correlation. 
Those graded as extroverts re responded to positive images, but not to negative images. Those graded as introverts responded only to negative pictures. But maybe those in introverted women responding only to negative images were just plain pissed off that day. Your brain has an emergency backup system. The cognitive reserve, or extra brain capacity, was discovered when elderly patients' autopsies showed that their brains had suffered the damage of Alzheimer's disease, yet they hadn't displayed any of the symptoms in their life. The illness still killed them, but they were free from obvious symptoms because they had extra brain capacity that kicked in to take over while their regular brain activity was damaged. They appeared free of Alzheimer's, and then suddenly suffer the disease briefly and die. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, and as a progressive disease, it gets worse and worse. Your abilities with language, memory, understanding, attention and orientation are the most common faculties attacked. The brains of people who have died of Alzheimer's show a major loss of neurons, thinning of areas of the brain, and the accumulation of plaques that clog up networking centres of the brain. There are treatments that can slow it down if it's caught early, but they have nasty side effects, so doctors want to be certain before they prescribe them. Unfortunately, diagnosis is purely on psychological testing, and unless it's already in your family, doctors are unlikely to pick it up until it's started to be disabling. There is no known cure. As many as one in three elderly people in autopsies showed signs of Alzheimer's disease. Head injuries and brain infections are associated with early onset of Alzheimer's, which may indicate that the person's cognitive reserve was already being used to deal with damage when Alzheimer's started making things much worse. The people who were found after death to have suffered Alzheimer's damage but didn't display any obvious symptoms are thought to have used their cognitive reserve. The two parts to this are extra neurons, if you have a lot more neurons than average due to inheritance or your lifestyle, the craniometry school may have had something a little right. A bigger brain seems to confer more cognitive reserve. The second part is your ability to retask other brain systems to take over from the damaged parts to keep you going as if nothing was wrong, until suddenly the disease damages too much for the cognitive reserve to compensate for, and the disease kills its victim. Cognitive reserve is largely an ability to optimise the way your brain uses the resources it still has despite the damage and to keep re-optimising as the damage increases. Cognitive reserve allows your brain to do the same with less resources and changes your brain to be more and more efficient with less and less. Brain size, childhood intelligence, reading ability, adult level of education, what you do for fun, your job and your family history all contribute to an ability to use your brain as if Alzheimer's disease wasn't damaging it. Research indicates that you can increase your cognitive reserve and thus improve your ability to avoid the worst symptoms of Alzheimer's disease until the end. Enriched environments can stimulate your brain to grow more neurons and new interconnections. Regular exercise can also stimulate your brain. The thing seems to be to keep engaged with the world. Wealthy people who are engaged with the world and their environment did better than anyone else. 
Widowed women, who had never been in the workforce and who were socially isolated, did the worst. Continuing to participate in intellectual, social and physical activities seems to maintain the cognitive reserve. Training in the kind of problem-solving engaged in by mathematicians is thought to be particularly effective. Mathematicians are trained to explore different pathways to solve the same problem and to translate a problem from one type to another type of problem that's equivalent but is easier to solve. This kind of translation and multiple solution training may help you make better use of a damaged brain that's slowly becoming more damaged. A 2001 study found that reading, visiting friends or relatives, going to movies or restaurants, and walking for pleasure or going on excursions gave a 38% lower risk of developing Alzheimer's symptoms. It's not rocket science. But of course, rocket science would give you intellectual stimulation that would help your cognitive reserve. A study from the University of Arizona found that using Facebook made a positive difference. One group, 14 of the adults were given Facebook training and were told to become friends with the others in the training group and post to the site once a day. In a second group, instead of using Facebook, 14 seniors were instructed to sign up with penzu.com and keep a private online diary in which entries can only be read by the writer where there's no social sharing component. A third control group were told that they were on a waiting list for Facebook training and never given the training. Psychologists often have to lie to experimental subjects. Before the study, the participants, who are all aged from 68 to 91, took a number of tests including questionnaires and neuropsychological tests. The test took into account factors such as loneliness and the social support network the participants had. The study lasted eight weeks. The group was tested again and it was found that those who took part in the Facebook group performed 25% better than they did at the start of the study on tasks designed to measure their mental updating abilities. Participants in the other groups, that is the private diary and control groups, saw no significant change in performance. While the intention of the study was to test how social interaction, engagement and support affect how the brain works, the project leader, Janelle Waltman, suspects that the improvements of the Facebook group were not from the social interactivity of the site. Instead, she thinks that the difference was caused by how complex Facebook is to use compared to the online private diary site. In a press release, Janelle Waltman said the big difference between the online diary and Facebook is that when you create a diary entry, you create the entry, you save it, and that's all you see. Whereas if you're on Facebook, several people are posting new things, so new information is constantly in front of you. You're seeing all this new information coming in, and you need to focus on the new information and get rid of the old information. Or keep it in mind if you want to go back and reference it later. So you have to constantly update what's there in your attention. Facebook might be helping build cognitive reserve, but it's not for everyone. And keeping safe online requires extra training for elderly people to understand Facebook's constantly changing strange security settings. So to develop this emergency savings account to let you keep going after brain damage from Alzheimer's disease, exercise boosts the blood supply to your brain, reduces risk for strokes,
boosts levels of nerve growth factors that allow the brain to grow new neurons, and spurs the brain to strengthen its connections. All other things being equal, people who engage in a wider variety of physical activities, like walking and biking and dancing and swimming, seem to be better protected against cognitive decline than those who don't. Intellectual stimulation, through reading, puzzle solving and playing games, can all help build and maintain cognitive reserve. In one study, participants who worked on a crossword puzzle four days of the week had a 40% lower risk of dementia than those who did a crossword puzzle once a week. Social engagement through socialising while you exercise or play games and through participating in community projects as a volunteer can make use of the large amounts of the brain that evolved for social activity. We are a social animal and social isolation is associated with decline in brain function. Don't be a hermit. Medical researchers are still working on a cure for Alzheimer's disease and none of these activities will stop it killing people until they find a cure. However, building and maintaining your cognitive reserve will give you the most protection for as long as possible from the cruel symptoms of this illness. Exercise, think hard, and socialise. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. By special request, here is Lachlan Watmore's story about craniometry, part of his series on the history of intelligence testing. Throughout the history of science, many pseudoscientific methods have been used to justify the stratification of society into a class system. This has even been conducted by researchers of supposedly good intentions. From 1999, Lachlan Watmore reports on the 19th century school of craniometry and its use as a social weapon. Give me head, baby! It's entirely understandable that people have tended to equate big brains with high intelligence. Look at the relative size of the human brain to those of other animals. We appear to jump off the scale in the expression of cranial capacity versus body weight. Our mental faculties certainly appear to be greater than those of other animals. We can reason, apply logic and think in the abstract, which even chimpanzees cannot do. Therefore, taking that argument a step further, it would be illogical to assume that people with big brains would be more intelligent than those with small ones. The measurement of the skull and its contents is called craniometry, which had its heyday in the 19th century. Craniometry turned out to be one of the great schools of biological determinism, which basically states that a person's social status and economic fortune are the result of his or her genetic inheritance. In other words, people born smart will become rich and powerful, while those not so blessed will find their station in life further down the socioeconomic scale according to their mental endowment. Craniometry, as you can imagine, seemed to be the answer that racists and sexists had been looking for in order to quantify and therefore justify the lower social status of non-white people and, frequently, white women. If it could be proved that people of small status are simply occupying their natural social niche, then upper-class males could live their lives free of guilt and feel entirely justified in crushing rebellion from below. In the rigidly stratified society, which was 19th century Europe, a vast majority of people had their station in life fixed from birth. 
it was almost natural that researchers, despite the best of intentions, would make their conclusions before measuring a vast array of skulls of various ethnic groups. To a 19th century observer, it seemed obvious that blacks and women were inferior and that surely the craniometric data would indicate this. As a result, craniometry, despite diligent, honest measurement of cranial features, is a classic example of people's prejudices governing their observational criteria and analysis of data to produce a socially comfortable conclusion that could well be a load of bullshit. The most famous craniometrician of the 1800s was the Frenchman Paul Broca. A surgeon by trade, he founded the Anthropological Society of Paris in 1859, the same year that Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. There had been many craniometricians before Broca, but they had come before the theory of evolution had been espoused, and therefore had addressed the subject from a creationist standpoint. I'd like to concentrate on Broca because he regarded himself as both a liberal and an evolutionist, and therefore appears an unlikely bigot. Broca lived in an age when scientists were intoxicated by numbers. He himself was careful, honest and meticulous in the laboratory, and his measurements frequently went to several decimal places. Despite making prior conclusions himself, he admonished his students to leave their hopes or prejudices at the door and draw their conclusions from the numbers, which was gross yet unconscious hypocrisy, given Broca's already drawn conclusions. Broca's motivation for studying skulls can be summed up in his own words. In an article published in 1861, he claimed that the great importance of craniology has struck anthropologists with such force that many among us have neglected the other parts of our science in order to devote ourselves almost exclusively to the study of skulls. In such data, we hope to find some information relevant to the intellectual value of the various human races. Note that Broca says relevant to the intellectual value. He is stating that intellectual values have already been arrived at and that craniometry is setting out to prove them. He is not leaving his prejudices at the door at all, despite later stating that it is an axiom of all observational sciences that facts must precede theories. Broca, as mentioned, was a faithful technician and used great care when generating data. He filled skulls with lead shot to assess their volume. The lead shot was then poured into a measuring cylinder to get a measurement. He also measured the dimensions of many skulls with respect to the relative sizes of different cranial parts. High intelligence was supposed to be indicated by a larger forebrain and smaller hindbrain, so Broca set out to show that non-whites and women's women had smaller frontal lobes than white men. Later, he addressed a different set of criteria that people with long faces and slightly elongated skulls are smarter than people with squarer heads. At almost every step, Broca found himself in highly embarrassing situations where his data were at odds with his assumptions and only fancy theoretical footwork could get him out of it. For example, when addressing cranial volume, Broca found that most Asians have larger capacities than Europeans. He sidestepped this by saying that some lowly individuals have big brains, but all people with small brains are lowly. He pointed to measurements of Africans and native Australians and modified his argument, saying that brain size may not be the ultimate measure of intelligence, but was certainly significant. Broca also ran into trouble when advocating elongated skulls as the mark of intelligence. It turned out that black Africans and native Australians have the most elongated skulls. Once again, Broca neatly avoided embarrassment by stating that African and Australian elongation were due to the enlargement downwards of the hindbrain in these groups, that their forebrain was still small and therefore they are inferior. 
Despite Broca's fancy footwork, craniometry did not survive the 19th century. With so many contradictions and socially unacceptable data, the measurement of the skull and its contents was finally rejected in favour of mental tests as an intelligence indicator. Broca should be given credit at this point for a separate achievement. He was one of the first to suggest the localisation of mental processes within the brain, and to this day a portion of the brain which enables the formulation of speech is called Broca's convolution. To conclude, here is yet another example of a prior conclusion reached by the manipulation of criteria and data. It's not exactly what you call objective science. That was Lachlan Watmore in 1999 on the failures of craniometry. From 2001, Tim Baines looks into the sun and sees spots, flares and a nasty something called a coronal mass ejection. Like the Earth, the sun has a magnetic north and south pole. But unlike the Earth, about every 11 years these poles swap places amidst a tantrum of solar activity. The peak period of this is known as the solar maximum. Churning magnetic fields in the sun's interior store vast amounts of energy. And during the solar maximum, dark regions called sunspots can be seen on the surface. It is believed that this is where the magnetic fields are particularly intense. In fact, monitoring these sunspots tells scientists where the sun is in the solar activity cycle. Anyway, the stored magnetic energy is occasionally released as eruptions that come in two flavors. One of these is the solar flare. This is a burst of visible and UV radiation that results from a sudden rearrangement of magnetic field lines in the sun. The second type of eruption is called a coronal mass ejection, or CME. A good analogy for what happens with a CME is a rubber band being flung across the room. If you imagine the stored magnetic energy as the stretched rubber, and in the same way the rubber band flings itself once it's released, a CME is a self-propelled gigantic ball of ionized gas shooting out from the sun, carrying the very same magnetic fields that launched it. What we're talking about here is billions of tons of ionized magnetized gas, or what we call plasma, hurtling through space at speeds of 6 million kilometers per hour, held together by its own magnetic field. So what does this mean for your average Josephine on the street? Well, on the 14th of July last year, a region on the sun's surface roughly the same diameter as Earth erupted with a flare of high-energy radiation. This in itself was quite spectacular, but it was also followed by something a bit more ominous. One of these coronal mass ejections spewed from the sun's outer atmosphere, heading straight for Earth. 26 hours later, this plasma storm hit. After totally frying a Japanese X-ray satellite, the magnetic cloud crashed into the Earth's magnetosphere, dumping 15, sorry, 1,500 gigawatts of power. It caused damage to two large power transformers and voltage regulating devices all along the east coast of the US. And they were lucky. You only have to look back as far as the previous solar maximum to find other instances of CME impacts. Early in the AM of March 13, 1989, the Hydro-Quebec Power Company was operating as per usual when the local magnetic field fluctuated violently. Such was the magnitude of this magnetic storm that in only 90 seconds, the entire province of Quebec lost was without electricity. And Quebec is not a place you want to take a cold shower in March. Some CMEs are more dangerous than others. If the cloud's magnetic field is opposite that of the Earth's when it impacts, then the effect is much more dramatic. 
The CME then generates a ring current encircling the Earth at an altitude of about 60,000 kilometres. But on the night side of the Earth, this ring, this ring current joins into the ionosphere. The ionosphere is a layer of more ionised gas in the upper atmosphere, and it normally has its own circulating current known as the electrojet. The surge from the ring current goes straight into the electrojet, which in turn causes the destructive surges in power transmission lines. It also allows auroras to be observed further away from the poles. Now since the last solar maxima, there have been about 2,000 new communication satellites launched, a space station or two, and society has generally become even more dependent on electrical devices like mobile phones and ATMs. So what can we do about these solar storms and how they affect us? Well, in terms of stopping them, we can't do a damn thing. But there have been some recent additions to the number of satellites monitoring the sun that may give us advance warning of CMEs. NASA and the European Space Agency have the Solar Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO for short, and it lives about one and a half million kilometers closer to the sun than the Earth. From its continual observations, SOHO can track a storm after it erupts from the sun and tell us whether it's heading our way. That might give us two to three days forewarning. Other satellites monitor the solar wind, a stream of particles and photons being blown outwards from the sun even when there's no solar maxima. This solar wind may speed up or slow down a CME. There are also two more satellites due to go up, due to go sunny side up in 2004 and 2006. But an intriguing characteristic, characteristic of the silence before the solar storm is the spectrum of x-rays emitted. In 1999, researchers reported that radiation from magnetically, magnetically active regions exhibit an S-shaped pattern over the x-ray spectrum. It's known the intense and contorted magnetic field lines are responsible for this, but it still doesn't help us predict when the storm will occur and therefore where it will be heading. As one researcher said, you know the gun is loaded, but you don't know when the gun is going off. Scientists believe the peak of the current solar maximum was July 2000, but the peak is broad and the whole deal can last two years. The heat is definitely on and it's going to be on for a while. That was Tim Baines in 2001, Getting Hot About the Sun. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program from 1999, Lachlan Watmore, from 2001, Deanna Coleman, Tim Baines, and Nick Perkins. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.